Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, The Meaning of the Movie. I'm here with my co-hosts, John Bolin. Hey, Rob. It's uh, beginning to look a lot like Christmas here in snowy Colorado. Beautiful. And then my other co-host, Andrew Harmon. What's up, Andrew? What's up? Excited to be here and talk about some movies. You know, the reason I wanted to start this podcast is actually because, you know what makes a good movie to me? Is a movie that I have to think about after it's over. Like if, like if a movie ends and I don't think about it a day later, a week later, it's not really that good. But the best movies to me are the ones that I actually think about after it's over. And so that's why I thought, oh, let's do a podcast to talk about the things that, you know, you think about when it comes to a movie. Totally. Um, well, today we've got a banger, a boomer, an epic movie. We are talking about Die Hard. And um, it's pretty incredible because I don't know if when this movie came out in July of 1988, the directors, producers, fam- filmmakers would know that this is the most hotly debated Christmas movie of all time. And so we're going to talk about that today. But I thought before we even got to is this a Christmas movie or not, I'm curious for you guys, what is a Christmas movie? Like what has to happen? What's the definition of happens to make something a Christmas movie? It's a really solid question. I think there's so many movies that take place like in December and there's Christmas decorations or there's Christmas music in the background, right? And people go, oh, this is a Christmas movie or people think, oh, it's not a Christmas movie. And I think that's around the center of this debate is, is, is it Christmassy enough to be a Christmas movie, right? So I've got a couple rules that we could just jump into of what makes something a Christmas movie. So I think there are four rules and you have to have at least two out of the four in order for it to be a Christmas movie. So right, are you I'm ready cl- for this? I'm, I'm ready. I'm clicking. I want to hear. All right. Here we go. So by default, it has to take place around Christmas time. That goes without saying. So rule number one is thematically, the character has to rediscover or learn to embrace a childlike wonder. Rule number two, the character thematically has to reorient his life around loving relationships and family. Oftentimes, that's in in contrast to like vocation or work life, right? So like the Santa Claus does that, right, with Tim Allen. Rule number three is Christmas morning or Christmas day functions as like a meaningful deadline to the mission. So like home alone, right? Like the mom has to get back to him by Christmas morning. If she doesn't, then the kid's alone on Christmas. Or number four, it just involves classic Christmas characters like Santa or elves, you know. Right. You get a lot of leeway. Like, if the movie's called Elf, you can kind of do whatever. It's a Christmas movie. Like, Right. Now, the fun part is Elf does all of those things. Elf checks all four boxes, which makes it like the perfect Christmas movie. Well, and that might be that might be an important designation here as we talk about what makes a Christmas movie is like what makes a like an A-list Christmas movie versus what makes a Christmas-ish movie, you know? Right. Well, so, let's let's get right to it then. Is Die Hard, based on that list, based on your four magical things, Andrew, <laughs> is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Andrew and John, what do you say? Andrew says no. Yes. John says yes. So, John, you say yes, it is a Christmas movie? You know, here's the thing. When, when Rob, you first posed this question, you're going to ask this question on this podcast uh, about a week or so ago. And my immediate reaction was, oh, I want it to be a Christmas movie, but it's really not. And then as I watched it, I just decided it was a Christmas movie. A, there, there are too many people 
that call Die Hard their favorite Christmas movie, that in itself to me <laughs> makes it a Christmas movie, right? So now <laughs> I know that's going to be a subject of contention, but that's all right. So that itself, in fact, I saw a graph that showed favorite Christmas movies of different states in the country. And there are four states out of the 50, so four, that had Die Hard as the number one Christmas movie in that state. Three of those states are Texas. <laughs> that is 100% accurate. So, so the, but the, the music, the decor, the, the overall theme, the missing the family. I mean, for sure, two of those boxes are checked in this movie. I think almost three of the boxes are checked in this movie. So my analysis of it is it's a Christmas movie. It's become a Christmas movie. Let's put it that way. So, Andrew, make your case. Why is it not a Christmas okay, movie? I think Die Hard desperately wants to be a Christmas movie. I think Die Hard thinks it's a Christmas movie. The Whoa. writer of Die Hard says it's a Christmas movie. Right. So, and the thing that sold me on it right off the bat where I go, oh, Die Hard thinks it's a Christmas movie is uh, he's, in, he's in the limo, right? He's with Argyle. They're driving in the limo. It's like right at the end of their chat about, like, is he married or not? And the limo driver turns on, like, pops in a pops in a cassette in his cool limo that has all the features. And he's like, I got this cassette player. Pops in the cassette, and it's like this hip-hop song. And Bruce Willis goes, oh, man, like, can't you play some Christmas music? And he goes, man, this is Christmas music. And it's, like, new and modern. And to me, that's the movie saying, like, this isn't the Christmas movie you're used to. This is a new, cool Christmas movie. So I think Die Hard thinks it's a Christmas movie. So I want to stop you right there and say, one, that song is called Christmas and Hollis. I run DMC and it's a masterpiece. It's actually on my <laughs> Christmas playlist every year. <laughs> um, I love that song. And two, I'm so glad you brought up that scene because I think that is the foundational scene that makes the argument that this is a Christmas movie. And not only that it thinks it's a Christmas movie, but there's two types of people who experience Christmas. One type of people have nice turtleneck sweaters and hot <laughs> cocoa and they sit by the fire and they just enjoy each other on Christmas. And you know what the other type of people have to do? They have to go to work. They have to go and run Starbucks. They have to go and run the gas stations. They have to run the police officers, all this sort of stuff. And I think what Die Hard fundamentally is saying is this is a Christmas story, not about the people with turtlenecks and hot cocoa. This is a Christmas story about the people who have to go to work and what their Christmas reality is. Fair enough. Yeah, but but I do think even, Andrew, using your like other Christmas rules, I think right. Die Hard checks the boxes of those rules. So, so let's go Let's go through those four boxes again and just okay. let's, let's overlay Die Hard. Box number one is what, Andrew? All yeah, right, that, so the first thing that you, you have to do is re-experience a sense of childlike wonder, right? Which is like people often call it like the Christmas spirit or things like that. So if you think of like Elf, for instance, it's like becoming more childlike again. That movie... Or um, the Polar Express. It's recommitting to that imagination or belief in magic, right? This movie does not do that at all in so any way. So you're saying if a movie does not have a character that re-experiences childlike wonder, it is not a Christmas movie. I'm saying that is of you. You have to have at least two out of those four. Okay, and I don't so think. That Die Hard doesn't have that. Like I, we. This is the first time we agree. <laughs> Die Hard yeah. does not have. <laughs> we're John McClane. Like goes, oh, this is so great. I liked guns when I was a kid, and now I get to shoot. Like, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> right, right. Like, he's trying to, like, he okay, wants so, to see so, his right, kids, right. but so that's, like, box, peripheral. 
Check box okay. number one does not pass. All, All right, right. So next. fail on box number one. Number two. All right. No, no. Number two. I think the movie thinks it does this, but it doesn't. And okay, that just, is what is number two. Number two is reorienting your life around loved ones and relationship instead if, of if this vocation. movie. If this movie doesn't do that, Andrew, it fails in, in every way that it's trying to succeed in terms of theme and story and character development. That's the whole point of this. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. This I, is where I, you're wrong. <laughs> I think it tosses this in here in order to try to make the list, but it's so it's so bare bones and the way that it does it, like he shows up and they both want to be together. They just this little argument in the way of like her job, right? They, they both want to be together. Then they get in an argument and then the terrorists show up and it spends the entire movie fighting terrorists. And he's just trying to save people. And at the end, he's like, oh, my wife is here. The, you are wrong on this. They the show whole up- arc of the movie is not about him trying to reconnect with his wife. You are totally wrong about this. They show up and they, yes, they want to be together. You're right about that. But what we know about John McLean is he's going to mess it up. He's going to mess it up. He's going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. This is a guy who's going to isolate his wife again. And when he, when she leaves, he's like knocking his head on the side of the door. Like, why did you say this? Why did this go wrong? And we see that like, this is the heart of the story. Like, is it well told or not? I don't know if a story has to be well told. There's a lot of movies that are, say they're Christmas movies that should not be Christmas movies. Sure. But I, I actually think that, by the way, this movie is perfect. And so I may be irrationally <laughs> defending it because I think you could take this movie to the Smithsonian and just say, hey, this is the perfect movie. Like, this is the movie that redefined what an action movie is. Totally. It's perfect. And so. Yeah, I actually would lean a little more into that. Like watching this, what I thought was this is the this is the like recipe of an action movie. And in fact, I think, you, I think after this movie, you had essentially die hard on a boat, die hard in a, in a bus with speed, die hard in a plane. Die hard. So it became almost like its own formula for an action movie. Right. So what's box number three? Let's go box number three. Okay. And I think we should get back to box number two, because I think that is the, that is the ultimate crux of does it in fact achieve that or not. But We'll continue on. Box number three is Christmas morning functions as a meaningful deadline to the mission. If they don't complete whatever it is by Christmas morning, then they lose, which is a Christmas carol. If Scrooge doesn't change by Christmas morning, then he's damned to hell forever, basically. Like Christmas Day has to be a meaningful deadline. And this does not do that. It absolutely does. This movie is all about getting to Christmas Day, because what do they do that's really interesting in this movie that they didn't have to do? They put his kids in the movie and they keep going back to his kids. They go like one, his kids are up at like midnight, like waiting for them like that. Their live in mate or whatever else is not doing a good job. And she lets the news crew in and <laughs> she's fired, by the way, if, I, if she's in charge for me. But he, he is trying to get home to his children and they keep kind of hitting that. Like, that's like what the idea is. It's like like. That is a Christmas trope, right? Of like, I've got to be home. I've got to be home for Christmas. It's a Christmas trope. And that's what the deadline is. And that's what John McClane's trying to do. Like, get home. So I'm going to play referee here because really I'm a little in the middle. And this is a great, like, head-to-head competition here with Rob and Andrew. So, Andrew, what's your response to Rob saying this absolutely uses Christmas as a ticking time bomb, no pun intended? I don't think it's a meaningful deadline. The deadline is, do they escape the terrorists by the time the terrorists are done? 
like Christmas morning, the terrorists don't have like, we need to get the money by Christmas day or, right? And John isn't sitting there thinking like, I need to get home to my kids or they won't love me, right? He's like, I need to get away from the terrorists, period. I need to say, no, more, more specifically, I need to save all of these people from the terrorists, period. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Christmas may be around and in the background, but it's not a meaningful deadline to the mission. Okay, Andrew, is It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie? Uh, yeah. How is Christmas a meaningful deadline to the mission? He Like, all he's trying to do is, like, not have the building alone collapse so sure. he doesn't lose all his money, so he doesn't lose everything. And when he thinks that's happened, that's when he's going to go and kill himself. Right. And so the, the whole thing in that movie is, like, it's not, ri- like, it could have been a Tuesday. It just happened to be set in Christmas. And so the snow's falling there. But Christmas is not crucial to that plot. It's not like, oh, it's Christmas morning and I need money for the kids. It's like, oh, my life is falling apart. What's the meaning of my life? I've lost my way. And then yeah. he opens his eyes and realizes like, oh, it was right in front of me all along. Totally. That sort of Ebenezer Scrooge experience is what Jimmy Stewart has and it is, or George Bailey has. And it is what John McClane has. And so I don't <laughs> like, are you arguing that It's a Wonderful Life is not a Christmas movie? No, I'm saying you have to check two out of the four boxes. It's Wonderful Life doesn't doesn't necessarily check that box, which is fine. But I'm saying that Die Hard uh, definitely doesn't check enough boxes. So box number four. Let's keep going. Number four is it revolves around classic Christmas characters like snowmen, elves, Santa Claus, Rudolph, baby Jesus. If it does that, you have all sorts of latitude to do whatever you want with the movie, which this does not. Yeah, I, I one, I do want to applaud those rules. I think those are really helpful, good rules. Um, and so A plus job on that. And Die Hard does not have that. I mean, I'm not going to argue <laughs> Die Hard as any of those things. So, but I, I do think, think it, it checks like what, 2.5 of the boxes. Like, I think this gets into what is the meaning of the movie. And I think if we go back to rule number two, which is reorienting your life around family versus your vocation, which you get in a lot of Christmas movies, you know, with an absentee dad having to come back and love his kids. I think the Santa Claus may be the best version of that movie. Uh, Elf does it too with James Caan. This has that in the idea of he is estranged from his wife and hasn't seen his kids for a little bit. And Act 1 is built on that. Act 1 says that's what this movie is going to be about. But ultimately, it's a movie about masculinity and that a real man will do whatever it takes to protect other people. And it's a blanket other people. Not family, not loved ones. It's service to other people, which is just a classic hero trope. And what they do is they compare John McClane constantly throughout the movie against other men who suck. So the creepy guy who's trying to hit on his wife all the time, Ellis, he goes into the office and tries to sell John out in order to save his own hide. The FBI agents come in and say, it's okay to kill some of the civilians as long as we kill the terrorists. All of the heroes in the movie are willing to do whatever it takes to protect other people and i think what the movie actually shows you and is actually about is that which is just a basic hero story it's not a christmas story so last thing i want to say on this is i think it's annoying kind of this conversation of like is die hard a christmas movie or not because i do think that's not the heart of the issue i do think where what i was saying before is die hard is such a good and perfect movie that it does make me a little sad almost that its legacy is like whether it's a Christmas movie or not. Because Agreed. I'm like, I'm like, this movie should like, and it is, it's, it's beloved, but now it's almost <laughs> this kind of weird trope. Like when you say Die Hard, Christmas is the first thing that comes to mind and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. The thing that should come, I mean, Don, John, you were saying it before. Like, I feel like Rocky, which made a million Rocky sequel or a million Rocky knockoffs of 
Mighty Ducks. Like it's Rocky with a hockey team. It's Rock Karate Kid is Rocky knockoff. Like all these other different stories. It's Rocky and it's Die Hard that have the two biggest like we're going to copycat this and it just set the mold of things. And I really think that's Die Hard's actual legacy. Um, but I, I do think it's much more elevated, maybe even than you're giving it credit, Andrew, because I think like it's so smart in how it does, how everyone's mm-hmm. undermining John McClane totally. every single turn. And I think that's what's beautiful about it. So to be clear, I loved this movie when I rewatched it. I thought it was like, I was like, this movie is so much fun. I think what it does great is creating its own brand or genre of action movie. Like, I think it's wonderful and it's trying to be a Christmas movie on the side. But what it's actually achieving and kicking butt at is creating this wonderful hero story. John, any other notes? Any where do you land on this? Yeah, I mean. I still would hold that I think it's a Christmas movie just because not not for any of the really thoughtful ideas that either of you have. I just think <laughs> I just like the duct tape with the Christmas trees on it on his back in that final scene. I just like the jingle bells at the right moment. I like the idea of it happening set in December. The scene, the setting, the music the it just feels like a christmas movie because of the setting to me but i would go back to talking about the meaning behind it and that to me is you know andrew you mentioned that this is a classic hero story i think that's sort of true um but even one step beyond that like indiana jones as a hero is a stereotype of a hero he doesn't he has flaws but not really whereas in this movie i feel like we set up John McClane from the very beginning, even in the pre-scene in the airplane, where he's white-knuckled on the airplane seat. He's afraid of flying, and we know that he's flawed. Not only is he afraid of flying, but he's lost his wife. He's lost his family. He's he he really is a a, a flawed character that is needing. You know, he's got this need at the very beginning of the movie, and then we see how the the movie itself like helps him recover what he's lost. And so it's not just that he's lost his family, but he's lost his like confidence. He's lost his, who he is. So he's not the picture of the classic action hero. Um, even, even the little visual, there's so many little things. I think that the director did so well, but you know, he starts the movie in his stark white tank top. And throughout the course of the movie, it just gets darker and darker and darker until it's gone. Like yeah, that I, whole I, thing is the symbolism there. The, 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 the scene on the airplane where the guy says, here's what you do. If you want to figure out how to relax after the flight or whatever that, that scene is, is take your shoes and socks off and white walk on the floor. And then that scene, you know, happens later. There's just so many parts there that I think were brilliant. Well, and that's the reason he doesn't have shoes on for the whole movie right. is because of what that's what I love about this movie. And that's why I say it should be taken to the Smithsonian is every single little setup is paid off in a really interesting way. Totally. So, so this actually gets me to our categories. And so we have categories in this podcast about really break down the movie. And so one of them is what did this movie mean to the filmmakers? And John, you just talked about like something that's so important is who was like you're a child of the 80s. You were kind of growing up in the 80s. Who was the action star in the 80s pre-Die Hard, John? Oh, man, pre-Die Hard? Um, I think of like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He was action action hero. Dolph Lundgren, action hero. Um, certainly, Sylvester Stallone in Rocky was action hero. And then Indiana Jones was, you know, the penultimate kind of action hero in his own little genre. Right. Um, These guys were all cool. They were all strong. They were all the smartest guy in the room. And then Bruce Willis comes along and he's on Moonlighting, which is like a 
kind of goofy comedy with Sybil Shepard, like adventure caper show. And then he stars in this movie and no one thought he could do anything. And so that's part of what made this movie so revolutionary was our hero was weak. You know, like, Andrew, you talked about what it means to be a man. But like part of it is like this is subverting all these 1980s, super jacked up, super roided up guys. This is John McClane who doesn't have shoes on, is wearing a tank top. It's just kind of like trying to make his way through. That's that's what made this so interesting. I feel like that's... Now, I was not alive in the 80s, to be clear. Well, I was for about two years. I was a very small baby. But yeah, Bruce Willis isn't Sylvester Stallone or Schwarzenegger, who at this point had just been in McTiernan's previous movie, Predator, right? So McTiernan comes up Predator and then makes this. So he's, he's not roided up, but he's also not like Justin Long or like you know, Josh Gad, he's not some like weak computer nerd. Like he's Bruce freaking Willis as he's, as he's getting off the plane, like the stewardess is checking him out and he's checking her out. Like he's still this really macho manly man. He may not be roided out of his mind, but like you look at Bruce Willis and the way he talks to, to the limo driver, he's, he's cool. He's almost like a Western star, right? Like he's super cool. That, super that's chill. It. He's like a, it's like a modern Western. He's the cowboy for sure. He's a Clint Eastwood essentially yeah, in, a, he, in an office building, but he does have the flaws. I mean, he's a little, I almost think of like a Bob Odenkirk in, in um, nobody ish, you know, where he's like, we, we see the weakness. We see the humanity, essentially. I think that's maybe where it connects with a lot of guys is like, I'm that dude. I, I struggle with fill in the blank. Maybe he doesn't struggle to keep himself in shape, but he struggles to keep his marriage in shape. He struggles with fears of everything from flying to losing whatever it is. He struggles with – and then, of course, in typical action movie style they throw everything in the kitchen sink at him from broken glass to bombs to elevator shafts to you know the top of the building and everything else but and he's getting hurt so this is different than all the other movies you see him you see his feet get cut up you see bruises you see like all this sort of stuff and you see him getting hurt more and more as the movie goes along to where by the end he walks in he can barely walk you know and like that's not true of rambo who's just walking in jumping in and still that's not true of the Terminator. Well, I guess it is. He kind of gets ripped apart. But like, for the most part, like, they're strong all the way through these other action people. And that's, that's what was so different as you see the physicality of it. I want to get to a few other people because um, we could talk about this for a while. But let's talk about John McTiernan. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned him. He's got a three movie run, which is, in my opinion, the greatest three movie run of any action director ever. It is Predator, Die Hard and Hunt for Red October. Pretty, like, it's pretty good right there. Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, yeah. <laughs> Sean Connery. All, all of their like, apex. I mean, <laughs> this is just absolutely incredible. And so McTiernan, like, to me, is just, and he never, like, he makes some other good movies, Last Action Hero and a few different ones, but, like, never quite reaches the mountains of that again. But I think that three-movie run is incredible. And then, you know, we have Alan Rickman. This is his kind of big debut. And... I mean, Andrew, do you want to talk about Alan Rickman at all? Like, he I is. mean, prior to this, he had he was mostly a British stage actor. Like yes. the um, McTiernan uh, saw him in in a play. I'm trying to remember which which one it was, but saw him in, in a play and was like, "Oh, this guy, he's my uh, he's my villain." So this was really his big coming out party for sure. Put him on the map, and then he becomes the greatest. Like I would say, he's the greatest movie villain actor ever. Like his run of like all these different villains from. 
Die Hard to Robin Hood, Quigley Down Under, Harry Potter. Like, he's just, like, incredible. Right. He's <laughs> and, like, the guy that you just want to sit there and chew the scenery, right? You give him these lines where you, you just want to sit there and listen to him talk for a while. He has such an interesting voice. Certainly he steals the show. There's no question in terms of overall, like, just delivery and character and owning that. I think Hans Gruber has become more of a... A, tr- a trope in itself than John McClane. You know, we 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 forget John McClane. Oh, that's Bruce Willis. Whereas Hans Gruber, as you think of first, he owned that character so amazingly in the movie. Yeah, he's like an all-time villain, right? Like, I mean, he's oh for sure. I would put him in my top five villains ever, and maybe. He's specifically who elevates this movie so much. I think as we get into like meaningful characters, like I think that is one of the things that this movie does so well and why it's so um, it's endured for so long is everyone knows the assignment. Like everyone is doing exactly what they need to do and doing it better than they should. For this being just like a fun action movie, everyone is sort of hitting at 100 percent, especially an unknown like Rickman at that point. Well, I want to I want to keep going and get on to we're talking about it. But what's the most meaningful scene like with these characters? Is there a scene that really kind of jumped out to you and like summed up like, hey, this is what the meaning of the movie is. This is what really jumped out and spoke to me. So for me, it was after Bruce Willis had been walking on glass and there were two phone calls to the cop. It was that moment with with the cop's backstory that was powerful. Yeah, he talked about shooting a kid that. Yeah, I mean, it was like. It was, and then of course there's the there's the payoff to that scene later at the very end of the movie for that character, and then you have the scene in the bathroom next where he says, "Tell my wife, you know, I've told her a thousand times that I love her, but I've never said I'm sorry." And to me, that was the the most meaningful scene in terms of his character development. Now, in terms of most exciting scene, when you say most meaningful for me, sometimes that's the most like wow moment. And there were other scenes that were that filled that category, but in terms of meaning. I think that's the moment for me. I almost said that scene too when I was like thinking through it, but the overarching theme of this this movie, in my opinion, is this idea of doing whatever it takes, literally whatever in capital letters it takes to protect other people. And so to me, it is still the same part of the movie, and it's the walking on glass, which is is a thing that viscerally stays with you. I feel like when you think of Die Hard, you think of shredded feet. And so this idea that after that moment, like he's pulling glass out of his feet, like you can feel that as you're watching it. I remember I was like in college the first time I watched this movie and just being like squirming, like it's so uncomfortable. And then when he dives off the roof with the uh, um, fire hose, with the fire hose, there it is. Yeah, when he dives off the roof with the fire hose, which is very like Mission Impossible, right? But then in order to get in the window, he has to kick the window open. He has to kick the glass window open with his already shredded feet. That to me is the moment where you're like, this guy will, this guy will not stop. Like, I cannot imagine the pain of doing that thing. Well, and that scene is one of my probably top 10, like all time scenes where it was just like, what is happening? I remember the first time that I saw it and he's there and things going to blow and you see him look at the fire hose and start doing it. And this, you mentioned Mission Impossible, but this created that sort of thing of this like, totally stunt. I, I mean, it was so shocking and amazing and thrilling. And what makes that scene so great is, yeah, he kicks through the glass. He goes through and he makes it. And then the thing falls down and it starts dragging him right. out of the window and out of the building. And you're like, oh, he's going to his death. And he has to like untie that fire hose. 
that whole set piece and sequence is unreal. It's it's so good. And and like not only that, but he does it while already so injured. I think he's been shot three times at that point, too. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, maybe just once. Maimed. <laughs> and Andrew, to your point, I, I do think you're right about this idea that this is a guy who will do whatever it takes to help others. And it's a great visual of him on the roof with all these people. Yeah. And they're all screaming and he knows that he's got to do something none of them are willing to do, which is jump off the edge of the building. <laughs> and then, of course, that when that, that fire hose, it's coming unraveled and then the whole piece like pops off. So you're like, ah, and then that I mean, just it's one one thing after another after another right it's a it is a it's a one it's got to be one of the top action sequences of any movie well the fbi is shooting at him from helicopters while he's up there and so like he's been fighting with the law enforcement the whole time and then they actually start shooting at him and it's just like incredible right um i i actually had both of those written down as meaningful scenes so i love that you guys mentioned those one other moment that i wanted to highlight that i think is so great is when this is right before the glass but when Alan Rickman, Hans Gruber is there and he's looking for his gun and then he jumps down and he's at Bruce Willis's feet and you see him looking at his feet and he realizes this is John McClane. And then he starts talking in that super awkward voice and they have that whole conversation with each other. That to me is so great because you see Alan Rickman all of a sudden is on top of it and it's like, okay, he's going to outsmart him. And then, you know, John McClane hands him the gun and then he's like, okay, give me my detonators. And then it's a blank. And it's you t- see these two guys cat and mouse game like going back and forth and outsmarting each other but it's the only time in the movie they're in the same room which is pretty incredible when you think about it yeah it's the only time they're in the same room except for the very final scene and i just think that scene and that's what makes this movie stand this test of time like christmas movie or not like take it or leave it that's fine but like this is such a great hero and such a great villain sparring off and i don't think it's been matched the cleverness of the way that they spar off in this movie totally it's now, I would say, somewhat like parodied throughout all the sequels. But the Yippie Kaye mother is such a great, it's like a throwaway when he says it at first. And then it's so great when he brings it back at the end, like right as Alan Rickman's about to die. Whoever wrote that line, just standing ovation. I put it on our family's Christmas card every year. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Tidings of comfort and joy. Yippee Kaye. That was also great what he wrote on the sweatshirt of that first dead oh, terrorist. Yeah. I have a machine gun now. Ho That's ho right. ho. Once again, Christmas movie. Christmas movie. Okay, so is there a least meaningful scene? Do you have a scene that's like, ah, this is not very meaningful? I don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor. I can't imagine because I really did feel like almost every minute or two of the movie needed to be there. I didn't have a least meaningful. I think for me. Maybe the limo driver sticking around for the whole movie for like his big conclusion scene where he like T-bones the van and takes out Theo, who's like getting ready for their big escape. But the fact of the matter is Hans Gruber never makes it to the van. None of the bad guys make it to the van to get away. So there was no like reason like he's not he didn't actually help like Hans Gruber falls off the top of the building. I mean, he, he punches out Theo. And sure, but like Theo was just getting the van ready. Like, who cares? And I, but I agree. I'm like, that scene is just like, oh, Argyle's been here this whole movie. We need to pay it off. And so we're just going to put a nice little button here. And yeah. like, like, like I always roll my eyes a little, like it's a little too cute when right. John McClane has just been like blowing up and there's so much going on that Argyle's there with the stuffed teddy bear, like doing a little adventure. I'm always like, ah, let's get back to McClane. Like, let's, let's keep moving. 
Right. And and I, I think that's always interesting when like you see other characters inspired by John, which I think I think the Al character, um, Mr. Mr. Family Matters man outside. I think he's a more meaningful version of what they were trying to do with Argyle 2, which is like people being inspired by John to do the right thing. And to me, it's the Al character that really solidifies like the meaning of the movie for me about like doing whatever it takes to help people is because Al reveals that like he can't fire a gun because he shot a kid once and he's traumatized. And that's like really deep. Like that's not like a weird throwaway thing. Like that's that's a thing that we hear about like in the news sometimes and like people like cops and like what do you do with that? Like that's like a big deal. And his big hero moment is when he gets over his own trauma in order to fire a gun again, which is very much on the edge of this like uh, fiery masculinity thing of like, I need to be able to fire the gun to help people. And that's his big arc. And John inspires him to be able to do that. So um, I have that as my least meaningful scene. That's really actually what is my least meaningful scene, because I think it actually upstages the meaning of the movie. I'm not as much of a cynic as you are. Like, I, I actually think there's more of a of a hopeful nature of like, no, like it's it's not like do whatever it takes to be manly. It's like do whatever it takes, even if other people won't do the right thing. And I think sure. Sergeant Powell, uh, yeah. I believe like, that for sure. It's very much like on the ground and he's standing up the guy who's the principal in the breakfast club and they're having a whole debate and then uh, is that the guy who's the principal in the breakfast yeah, club he's like <laughs> that's amazing. you want to make it two we can make it three yeah he's the same guy <laughs> he's like the jerk <laughs> in all the movies so sergeant powell is stepping up to him he's doing everything right and i thought it was really meaningful which is like actually you don't have to fire a gun to make a difference i actually sure. thought that's part of like what the story was saying and telling and then the yeah. fact that carl who like last time we saw him was pretty much hanging dead you know, there and then all of a sudden he comes and it's just slow-mo. And whenever an 80s movie goes to slow-mo, it's just like, oh, this is about to get bad. Even in a movie <laughs> as perfect as Die Hard, it's just like, mm, <laughs> this is not going to work. And for him getting slow-mo and he's like ripping everyone off and he's taking the super big rifle. I was just like, this is nonsense. Like, this is not like it actually betrays the sense of like realism and uh, authenticity that I think the rest of the movie have. It makes I, it more of like a Carpenter horror movie. Yes. Of like the yes. like unkillable guy comes back for one last thing. Yes. That's a great you just, example. You just use the words realism and authenticity. <laughs> with to describe Die Hard. Die Hard. <laughs> to describe Die Hard. <laughs> to describe the movie about an exploding skyscraper where someone dives <laughs> that, off the top with that, a fire hose. <laughs> if that doesn't paint the picture of Rob's love affair with this movie that I have never heard something that does. That's I awesome. told you I'm a, I'm a diehard apologist. I do think this movie is near perfect. <laughs> Meant it like, but I mean, that's the scene that I feel like ah, I was watching it again. And every time it happens, like I never get, maybe the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's really cool. But I do think it's one cheesy. And two, I do think you're right, Andrew. It's on the edge of like problematic of like, no, this guy actually is making a difference where he's at. And it's like, nope. The only way you can make a difference is if you're killing terrorists. And it's like, oh. But that was also part of the 80s formula for action movies was, but wait, there's more. Yes. Even after the after the final battle, after the final climactic whatever, there was always a final resurrection of the alien, resurrection right. of the villain. You thought they were dead and their hand reached out and grabbed you. And that was that moment of, oh, there's you haven't quite finished it yet. And then. Who finishes right. it off? It's the guy that needs to wrap his story arc kind of thing. 
Right. And I think that to me maybe shifted my view a little bit of what the movie like theme was a little bit for me, where had he not had to do that, you're, you're right. All of his stuff the whole time of just like doing the right thing, believing in someone, having faith could have been even a little bit more more Christmassy. Right. This idea of like the Breakfast Club principal is down there saying, like, how do you know that this McLean guy isn't a terrorist? And he's like, I don't know, man. Like, I just like I just believe I just have faith. There is a little bit of that faith thing in there. It's yeah. a stretch. It's a stretch. But um, that to me was the best part of his character. Yeah. Like, I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I believe in John McLean. Right. <laughs> Put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> that, that should be our first T-shirt for meaning in the movie. Like, I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I believe in, <laughs> I believe John, in John McLean. McLean. <laughs> I like it. It's good. It's good. It's good stuff. Okay, we've probably covered this, but just curious, most meaningful character, who stood out to you guys as your most meaningful character? Well, John McClane is, seems obvious to me. That's the most meaningful character. He's the one who drives the story forward. He's the one we're watching. I think between he and he and Hans Gruber, that's why we've got 30 years of Die Hard and it still stands the test of time. I think oof, the sparring of John McClane and Hans Gruber really sets the movie up to be the best action movie that it is. And I think Al, the cop, is the thing or is the character that pushes it the closest to being a meaningful movie about doing the right thing. And all of their conversations over over the walkie, with the exception of that final scene. I think the idea of what does it mean to be a hero is most explored uh, with him. Yeah, I, I definitely think my guy would be Sergeant Powell, who's like, is that character who's the unsung hero of the movie. And what's so critical about him is that we get a cut outside the building. And I think that's what makes it feel grand as well, is we're cutting back to the police trying to figure out what to do. We're cutting back to the newscaster out there. We're cutting back to like them trying to figure out what's going on in there. And I think that, I think he like is that character that like grounds us and mm -hmm. makes us care about what's going on outside the building. Sure. And I, that's so important that you feel this, what's going on outside the building, like is actually maybe not like, it should be the hope is coming. Like, I think that's, that's a big meaning throughout the movie, right? Like hope is coming. Like the first time he calls the police and sets the fire alarm, they're all coming for him and he's jumping mm. up and down and he's like, I don't have to do this. Like he right. actually doesn't want to be the hero. And I think that's, what's interesting is he's fine to just stay up there and let the police come and take over, but he's the reluctant hero. And so we're getting more and more connected that like hope is not coming out there. And you're the police are actually coming after you too. The FBI are going to shoot at you. And Al like roots that whole story and it just gives it an, another dimension that I do think really hits. It actually feels somewhat believable. The movie's crazy, right? But John does all of the, almost every step you would go through before it gets to where it is, right? Like he tries to call the cops, he can't. So he radios the cops from the roof, which doesn't work. Then he pulls the fire alarm, which doesn't work. Like all of these steps one by one of trying to, do what makes the next most sense feels like it keeps you rooted in an actual person versus like some kind of a Rambo style crazy action hero. Yeah. Even when he shoots up the car and throws the person out of the window, he's just trying to get the police to come. He's trying to get their attention so he doesn't have to do it. Right. So I, th I think that's really interesting. I don't know that I was ever reading that as so he didn't have to, as opposed to like, he was realistic that there was no way he by himself was going to take out 12 guys with machine guns. And so he needed help. Yeah. I, yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting. He wasn't the kind of action hero that was just like, I can do it. It wasn't 
to your point, Andrew, a Rambo, I can do it all. Numerous times he looked down and tried to call for help. He looked down when the when those first line of police cars, you know, stopped and turned away. And when the, the policeman finally came to the building, like he was constantly looking for backup. It just never materialized for him. Right. Yeah, he's I, I do think he's waiting for the police. He's hiding through most of the movie. Like he's actually he's hiding in ducks very famously. He's hiding right on the 31st floor. When the terrorists first come, he runs up there and hides. And even when that scene where they're all kind of rampaging the building and they get the rocket launchers, he's hiding, hiding, hiding until finally he's like, I've got to do something. And that's when he takes the computer and wraps it up and puts the C4 on it and blows up those levels because he realizes like no one is going to do something if it's not me. Right. It's all true. Anything else you guys have to say on what the meaning of the movie is? Well, you, you ask yourself, why is Die Hard? First of all, why did it? Has it stood the test of time 30 years? There's a lot of action movies that have come out in the last 30 years, a lot of action movies. But this is maybe the only action movie that people will watch every year. And not, not everyone, but there's a group of people that love to watch it on a regular basis. Why is that? And partially it's because it's just become that in our culture, right? It's just because it has its own place as a call it seasonal movie or Christmas movie or, or an action movie that you want to go back and revisit. Like I haven't, I don't remember the last time that I watched Rocky, but I, I watched Die Hard last year and this year. And part of that is because of the Christmas Die Hard conversation. But part of it is because we, I think, identify with that character of we have flaws. We feel like we've messed up in life. We feel like we've let our family down. We feel like we've let ourselves down and we dig deep. And I think when John McClane is hiding in the bathroom or under a counter or walking across glass, we say to ourselves, maybe I can do that. You know, and I'm not, I'm not fighting Hans Gruber, but I'm fighting my own Hans Gruber. And maybe that's my own story, my own insecurity, my own frustration, my own you know, mistakes that I've made. And somehow at the end of the day, I can, I can do my own version of pulling the guns out from behind my back and, and have that moment and look that thing in the eye and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. So that I think is why it stands the test of time more than anything is it echoes something, I think, deep in the heart of every person that maybe watches it, or at least some people that watch it that says, if John McClane against all odds, when all hope is lost, can find a way, maybe I can too. I connect with this movie emotionally and like the way that you described, like you just took me to like John McClane church, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I feel that bro. Like I, like I do like kind of connect with this movie and maybe it is because of when I watched it or whatever else, but I'm like, Oh, I do feel that journey. And I do think that I do think it does mean that for a lot of people. For, for me, one of the things that it does so well is all of the other non-hero characters are various versions of selfish people. It's not a bunch of Hans Grubers, right? It's not a bunch of people trying to steal millions of dollars by blowing up a skyscraper. Everyone else that is getting in John McClane's way is just other people that are selfish. And there's something about John sitting there fighting to do the right thing at his own expense that I do think is inspiring and makes you want to be a better person. Like, would I get up with my feet that torn up and chase after a bad guy? Or would I just go in a closet and hide? There's like a large part of me that says, no, nah, I'd probably go in a closet and hide. But like, you want to be the better guy. 
you don't want to be the reporter. You don't want to be all those other guys. Yeah, I've never thought of it quite like that, Andrew, but that's really well said of like everyone else, all the other like good people or institutional people or whatever else, they're all looking for their own selfish ambitions. Yeah. The newscaster, this is going to make my career. For the FBI agents, they're like, we're only going to have 20% loss. Pretty good for a day. Like they're kind of tooting their own right. horns. The, even the know, even the guy, I can't think of his name, the actor that goes in to negotiate, you know, <laughs> he's going to go and yeah. he's going to take care of everything and figure it out and negotiate. And, you know, what a heel. He thinks he can he can do it. Hans, Bubby, I'm your white knight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is an absolutely incredible scene, you know, for him to do. It's such a memorable scene. And you see McLean there and then he's like, Ellis, tell me you don't know me. And, you know, just just that whole scene. And again, he's just on the radio. It's so smart. and so good. But yeah, he he's being the hero for very, very selfish reasons. Right. I would say my meaning of the movie is I do think it's sentimental of this idea and guys of like, I would do anything to save my wife or save my girl. And there is this sort of like, I, w I would agree, Andrew, with the idea of masculinity behind it, but it's just there. And when he finally sees Holly and he see she sees how messed up he is and it's like, OK, this is the guy. Talk about selfish. John McClane was always kind of the guy who was selfish who didn't go to New York with her when she was obviously getting an incredible job. She gets that watch that's worth all the money, you know, like that actually leads to Hans Gruber's death. But, you know, she's she's killing it at this job. She's doing such a good thing. And he's a New York cop, but he won't die to himself. He won't lean into her. And he's just being selfish all along the way. And then when he finally appears, just totally cut up, messed up, bruised and says, hey, honey, that is the scene where it's just like, I want my wife to know that I want my girlfriend to know that, that I would do anything to save her and like be a hero in that sort of way. And I think that's John, you ask, why do we keep watching it? I think that scene in that moment totally. is why there's something that resonates with us. That's like, I would do that. There's something deep inside of us of like, or at least, or at I, least we I say, movies, I want to be that guy. I want yeah, to be him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of times you ask, what would I do? And you're like, man, I would do whatever it takes. You know, like you watch that movie and think it. So I think, I think that's the meaning of the movie for me. And, you know, maybe the most meaningful scene is, you know, we haven't even talked about Hans Gruber's death, you know, falling, which has now become memeified. And like, everyone's like, my Christmas doesn't start until Hans Gruber falls from Nakatomi Tower. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a rumor that in order to get that shot, the director said, like, we're going to count to three and drop you. And then he dropped him on like two or something. Yep. In, in order to get the actual response out of his face. I heard about an advent calendar which you could open and each day shows Hans Gruber falling a little further. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems. <laughs> oh man. That may, that may see, push me back to Andrew's point of like, what have we done with this movie? <laughs> People may be missing the spirit of Christmas. <laughs> Christmas has jumped the shark. Well, uh, I I had fun guys. That was a great discussion. Everyone. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast review and uh, we look forward to hearing from you next time on the meaning of the movie. I feel like the name die hard is the closest thing in a great movie to snakes on a plane. It's just the name of what happens. Like, it's not it's, thematic. It's, it's not like the name of the short story that it's like based on or the novel is based on is nothing lasts forever.
and they went ahead and named the movie Die Hard. Like, this guy's hard to kill. Like, it's so just on-the-nose specific. Like, I was watching this movie, and I was like, I feel like they snaked on a plane, this title. But it's also got this cool, <laughs> like, edge to it. Like, Die maybe hard. I'm just, maybe I'm irrational, but I'm like, <laughs> it's a great title. Like, Snakes in a Plane is like, okay, it's funny, it's cute, we're just going to call it. Die Hard is just like... I don't know what happens in that movie, but take my money. (laughs) Like when I'm 13, if I see a movie called Die Hard, I'm like, I am there opening night. Where are we going? I mean, to be I mean, to be fair, if I was 13, you know, you see a movie called Snakes on a Plane. I'm there for that, too. (laughs) (laughs) All right.